Well, good morning. My name is Al Barth. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Um, one of the things that um, uh, we'd love to have you actually pray about uh, today, um, although I may, I may mention it in my prayer as well, but um, this weekend, uh, our lead pastor, David, and his wife are trying to sell their house in Nashville. Uh, this has been a very, very tough year for them. A year ago, when you guys embarked on this journey of and uh, uh, made the agreement, and David made the agreement that he would kind of go back and forth. I think David thought it was going to be a little bit easier than what it's been. It's been incredibly hard for him to go back and forth and back and forth. But they've, they've got a three-day event this weekend where their house is on the market. On Friday, they said they had 30 showings scheduled, and they thought that they'd have more scheduled, but they're hoping to get an offer this weekend to be free from that house, get it closed, and allow them to come down. So if you'll pray that the Lord will give them a good offer and that it's actually one that will be, be able to be finished and completed, I think that'd be a great thing. We'd love to have him here all the time now. And it will be just a couple months, uh, a couple of weeks before he's here uh, uh, full-time with us. So if you will or if you want to, uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13 or if you've got a telephone that you've got a, a, a Bible on, feel free to do that. But also the passage I'm about to read will be on the on the. Uh, the monitor behind me soon, um, but I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to pick up the reading at verse 24. Uh, I'll be reading from the New International Version this morning, which might be a little bit different than what's on the monitor behind me. But here, if you will, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? And he replied, An enemy did this. The servants asked, Do you want, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring, the, bring it into my barn. Now let me skip down to verse 36. So then he left the crowd and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the, are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. And as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's, let's bow as we come to the Lord's, Lord's word this morning. Father, we pray that even as we open your word this morning, we ask that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds to what you have to say to us. 
We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself not only in creation, but that you have revealed yourself in written word, that we might know you through that, that we might know what your will for us is, that we might know what you are doing in this world. We thank you, Lord, that you have condescended to speak to us in words that we can understand so that we might be able to come back into a right relationship with you. Father, make us receptive to your word this morning. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. When Jesus taught his disciples um, and the crowds that follow him, he often spoke in parables, stories that uh, illustrate important truths. Now, I'm going to give you a little caveat before we get started this morning, and that's a, that, the, that, that is that we always need to be um, careful not to push a parable too far and make it say more than what it was intended. Now, I'm going to say more about that later. Actually, at the end of the sermon, I'll, I'll bring this back up again. But for now, let me say this much. Parables are usually intended to communicate one or two truths, not more than that. And they're communicated in such a way that they stick in our minds, and it's hoped that they actually stick in our hearts as well. I don't know about you, but I tend to remember stories better than I remember any other kinds of instruction given to me. Well, the parables in this 13th chapter of Matthew have been called parables of the kingdom. And each of them is intended to help us understand something about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's somewhat of a difficult concept to understand. So Jesus tells us a number of different stories, giving us kind of different perspectives on what that kingdom is. And in fact, in this passage, the way Jesus puts it is that these parables were given, the reason why he's teaching them in parables, is they're given to reveal certain secrets or mysteries of the kingdom, certain things that would be hard to understand. Last week, uh, our lead pastor, David, talked about the parable of the sower, which explains the mystery. Why is it that some people respond to the gospel and others do not? And if you listen to that message, it's all about our hearts. It's all about the nature of, our, of the soil that we find within, within our hearts. This parable that we're considering today deals with a different mystery. And that mystery is essentially this. Why does God allow wicked people to continue to exist in the world in which we live alongside of the righteous. Why doesn't he just wipe them all out? He could if he wanted to, but he doesn't. And in, so in going after this, as we try to unpack it, I want to talk about two basic truths that are communicated in this parable. One is this, is that the punishment of evildoers is inevitable. It's sure. The wicked will eventually be punished. You can be assured of that. The second thing is that God has chosen to allow the wicked to flourish alongside of the sons of the kingdom so that undue damage is not done to that seed, to those sons, or to the purposes that God is seeking to affect within our world. God allows the wicked to, to, to exist alongside of the righteous for a time, maybe a short time, but for a time. So let me deal with a preliminary issue now. Uh, so I've got the one thing out of the way, the caveat. Now, now let me tell you about this. One of the things that I don't think we're ever going to understand uh, is why when Lucifer, an angelic being, rebelled against God in heaven and he caused another third of the angels to rebel against God, 
I don't think we'll understand why God did, just didn't obliterate him right there. Why did he cast him down from heaven and allow him to meddle with humankind and the creation as, as we know it? That, in essence, is, a, is one of those mysteries that maybe we'll, we'll understand it once we get to the other side, once, we, once we're in the eternal state. We don't really know. We're actually not given the reason for that within Scripture itself. But that act set up a struggle between the sons of the kingdom and the sons of, of the, the evil one that's been perpetual throughout history. And it continues to this day. And although philosophers and theologians have tried to deal with this problem of evil, that's, what, that's often what, 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 what we call it, there's never been a, an ultimate answer to that question. We don't have that ultimate answer within Scripture. So even when you see Job kind of raging against, against God and he's trying to, he's dealing with, the, his, his whole family has been devastated. Everything he's had has been taken away. He's saying, why God, why? God doesn't really answer him. When he answers him, he answers them, he answers them in a different way than what Job you know, had, had, had suggested. Were you there when the world was formed? Were you there? Who are you to question? And the assumption is, I've got a purpose. You may not understand it, but there is a purpose. So let's rehearse the details of the parable that we've got uh, in front of us before we try to unpack its meaning. A man, and Jesus identifies himself as that man, uh, sows good seed in the field. That seed is the sons of the kingdom. And, while, uh, and the field is the world. And while his men slept, an enemy comes and, see, and sows um, uh, weeds or tares, as the King James would uh, use the word. Probably, it's, it was probably something that was called darnel, which looks a lot like wheat until it actually begins to head. When the actual kernels form, that's the only time that you can tell that it's weed and not, uh, and, uh, not wheat. And he does that in order to try to either destroy or diminish the harvest. I think that's what the enemy was about. Well, when that, that, weed, that wheat does begin to head, the presence of the weeds becomes known. And so the servants come to the man and he say, do you want us to go in and rip out the weeds? And he says, no, I don't. And he gives the reason why. He, the reason why he didn't want it to happen was that in going into the field to rip out the weeds, you may rip out the wheat as well. You may trample down the crop and it actually be lost. So let me talk about the first of those truths that I just had mentioned to you a moment ago. The punishment of evildoers is inevitable. That's a pretty heavy truth. In fact, um, the way that Jesus describes the punishment of the evildoers in this passage and this is probably about the closest I get to a hellfire and brimstone type sermon, so <laughs> although I don't think it'll be too rough this, this morning. But the punishment of the evildoers is pretty terrifying. At the end of this age, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, all things that cause sin, all who practice lawlessness, all the lawbreakers, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. And there will be wailing or weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I suppose it partly depends on which category you're in. You know, I mean, if you're part of the wheat, you know, it's, it's, that's a good thing. Uh, it's a good thing because it means that justice will be done. That things will actually be put right. 
It's a bad thing if you're on the other side. That's kind of one of those, oops, you're in trouble, you know, kinds of things. But one of the things I find encouraging about this text is that Jesus acknowledges the presence of evil and wicked people in the world. And we know it even while uh, uh, he assures us uh, that, that he will deal with that evil. Evil is real. This world really in many ways is not a safe place. There's evil and there's righteous within the world. I often um, struggle a little bit when I, when I see certain parents that want to shield their children from the realities of wickedness or evil, evil within the world. Something is off. Now, I don't think we, we need to be careful not to, not to cause our, our kids to be paranoid or something like that. But on the other hand, we need to tell them what the reality of the world really is. There was one point when I was in Rome and a couple of guys had come over uh, to see the work that we were doing there. And, and it was the first time that they'd ever been in Rome or I think actually in Italy as well. And we were about to go down and enter into the subway uh, within the city. And Rome is known for its pickpockets. Pick, pick so as, as we were about to go down the subway, I said, hey, guys, listen, here's what you need to do. You need to pull your wallets out of your back pocket, and you need to put them in your front pocket, okay? And then keep your hand on it. And they both were kind of said, you know, said, really? I said, yeah. You just need to know that there are pickpockets. Now, I've never had my pocket picked in Rome, but... You know, this, this is what you should do. And it was interesting. We go down to the subway. And this was actually the first and only time that this actually happened. You know, but we're about to get on this subway train, really crowded. And, and we're, we're already on, but there's a, there's a family from Norway. We actually find out they're from Norway later on. But there's a family from Norway trying to push onto the subway. And there's three adolescent girls, probably 12, 13, 14 years old. And just as the doors are about to, about to close, they push out to get out. And there's a, there's a, uh, an Italian woman sitting down and she begins to say something Italian and what it was, was they grabbed your wallet. So he, you know, he, he's on now, but outside the three girls are holding up his wallet and grinning. And the doors have closed and the subway leaves the station. You're never gonna catch them again. And all of a sudden the guy said, oh, you weren't kidding. Yeah, there's really pickpockets. There's really evil in the world. Uh, about 12 years ago, uh, we were in the midst of trying to form a network, a church planting network within Europe. And I took about 10 of the key European leaders out to, to the beaches of Normandy. It was in the off season, so we got a big house out there where we could sit and talk for about three days. And I thought as we went out there, you know, one of the, one of the really great things to do would be to get a tour you know, of the beaches and that, that kind of thing. And by the way, if you've never been there, I strongly encourage you to, to go there. It's an incredibly moving experience to see the reality. But what I hadn't really thought about was two of the guys were, that were with us were young German guys. One was 26 and one was 24. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, wow, how are they going to react? And it was really interesting, their reaction. It actually ended up being exceedingly good. But all through school, the, you know, they'd been, talked to, you know, they'd been told about the Holocaust and all the terrible things and that kind of thing. And, and they'd gotten to the point of, yeah, 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 we've heard about that, that's history, that's no longer the, the, you know, what, what's going on. Well, as we went about, uh, uh, went about the beaches there, they ended up being struck with the reality of, our nation did this. It really 
impacted them in a deep way. And it was actually ended up being a very, very good thing in, in many ways. But there's real evil in the world. We need to deal with the reality of that. In one sense, this parable, in effect, kind of begs the question, what is the true nature of our world? What is the true nature of reality? Are there wheats and tares? Are there, are there good people and evil people in the world? Will there be an eternal accounting for the, the things that we have done and the things that we have said? Or will evildoers get away with it? Well, Jesus would have us to believe that there will be an accounting for everything that we have done or said. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's one of my favorite phrases, by the way, in, in the Bible. You know, we may not be comfortable with the truth, but here's what it is. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Too often I hear people express the sentiment in one form or another. You know, it doesn't really matter what you do or what you believe. In the end, we're all going to get there, right? You know, no matter how, how terrible a life somebody has lived at their funeral, they say, well, he's in a better place. I'm not so sure. As one of my favorite preachers used to say, that smells like smoke. It comes from the very pit of hell. That's the deceit of the evil one. He would have us to believe that there will never be an accounting. So therefore, we don't need to respond. On a gut level, on an intuitive level, we know, in fact, that, in fact, we know that we know that there will be an, an, an eternal accounting. The human heart cries out for injustice, for, for justice in the face of injustice. At times when we're trying to rationalize some sin in our lives or avoid what we know to be our moral obligation, we may try to convince ourselves that there's no accounting, but we know intuitively that there will be. Think about it for just a moment. In the last century, we had three or four of the most notoriously evil leaders the world has ever seen. I just mentioned Adolf Hitler. Hitler was guilty for at least 11 million deaths in the Holocaust, six, about 6 million Jews and about 5 million others. Gypsies, uh, people that were from African heritage, mentally handicapped, physically handicapped, homosexuals, intellectuals, dissidents. He literally intentionally murdered 11 million. That's beside the other millions that were killed in the war that he perpetrated on the world. Joseph Stalin. Estimates are that, that he, during his reign, at least 20 million people were killed. Not in the war, because the war is, is, is in addition to this. He starved, just in Ukraine alone, he starved intentionally, deliberately, absolutely in, intending, intending to do this, five million people in order to collectivize the farms, in order to enforce his rule. But he's guilty for at least 20 million deaths besides the war dead. Mao Zedong. Estimates are that he starved and killed at least 44 million. One of the estimates ranges up to 77 million. I doubt that that one is actually accurate. And there was, another, there was another individual that maybe some of you may not know, Leopold II. I don't know if you know who Leopold uh, was. Supposedly a Christian monarch in Europe. 
but he, he grabs a hold of the, what, what, we, what can be known as the Belgian Congo. He takes as his personal position, possession a colony, the Congo. We just had one of the guys from the Congo here and preached on Saturday night just, just a, few, a few weeks ago. But, uh, and so he took, took, um, took possession of that in the late 1900s, the early 20th century. But he was guilty for at least 15 million deaths among the Congolese, primarily in order to gain rubber and, and, and minerals. If, they, if, the, if the natives did not produce enough rubber, he cut off their hands or he executed. At times, he came in and wiped out a whole, whole village because they didn't make the quota. And there were many others, by the way. Paul Pot, do you remember that? Cambodia, um, at least a million dead. Idi Amin, in the, in the 70s, he was guilty of at least 600,000 um, uh, people in Uganda being, being killed. And, then, and we could mention many others. But even just now, we have Putin, who is prosecuting what I think is a senseless war in Ukraine against, in essence, innocents, people that aren't, doing, aren't intending to do him harm. And the question is, can we reasonably believe, can we reasonably believe that God will not hold those people responsible? I don't think so. We have to believe that God will hold all of them responsible, that the wicked really will be punished. But it's not merely or even primarily an intuitive sense that should cause us to believe that that the, the punishment of evildoers is inevitable. The scriptures are clear about the issue itself. And not just here in this passage, but in many other passages throughout, throughout the, the scriptures. So here's the good news. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two good news this morning. The good news is this. Our God, the Lord God Almighty, is a God of both mercy and justice. He's a God of love. But because he's a God of love, that love demands that he hold accountable those who hurts the, hurt the innocent and the ones he loves. It's funny that justice is directly related to love. We think of him sometimes more of as kind of an overindulgent parent, you know, that warns and warns and warns but never punishes. But the scripture says, our God is a consuming fire. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But let's be careful, because we should hesitate to think that it's only the notorious wicked that, that will be brought to judgment. The scripture says in Romans that each of us will have to give an account of ourselves to God. A slightly different way to ask the question is, is will those of us who do evil get away with it? And I'm not necessarily talking about those those uh, sins that we usually think of as the big sins, adultery and murder, child abuse, political corruption, corporate graft, those kinds of things. I'm talking about the little things that we do throughout our lives. The meanness of spirit, the selfishness, taking advantage of others, betrayals in relationships, mistreating the people around us, cheating a friend or someone who's done work for us. One of the many things I regret from my childhood, and there's plenty of things I regret from my childhood, but one of the things I really regret was an incident that took place when I was a sophomore in high school. There was a, there was a, a kid, a boy. Uh, we called him Mouse, because he actually he had kind of a pointy face or whatever, so he looked a little mouse-like. Uh, 
But Maus was probably poor. I really don't know much about him. I know that he wore the same olive green sweater to, to school uh, every day. Uh, um, and Maus often was unkempt. Uh, he evidently didn't bathe as often as what maybe he should have. Uh, he was Jehovah's Witness, so he wouldn't stand you know, for the time when we would do the Pledge of Allegiance or those kinds of things. So he was often abused. But I remember one day, there were a number of boys that were abusing him, beating on him, spitting on him or whatever, and I spat too. I don't know what damage was done to that kid because of that bullying, but I, ma- I imagine it's been lifelong. We do evil things. We do wicked things. We should not excuse ourselves for those wicked things. Actually, the answer that Scripture says is that all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, is there hope for us? Will any of us who do evil, which is all of us, will any of us get away with it? And actually, the answer is yes. Yeah. Some of us will get away with it. But the only way that we get away with it is because someone chose to stand in our place and take the punishment that we deserved. That's the reality. Scripture says that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is it possible to escape the punishment that we deserve? Actually, it is. In fact, no one has done something that's so evil that they cannot be forgiven, but they've got to take advantage of the offer that God has made us in the gospel. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So why does God delay the judgment? Why does God allow evil, the evil seed to flourish alongside of the good seed? It's frustrating for us sometimes incredibly disheartening, sometimes even soul-crushing to see evil flourish and worse if we're the victims of that evil. And you need to remember who Jesus was talking to. He was talking to a Jewish audience who at that point was being oppressed by the Roman Empire, which was not an easy thing. And actually for over 900 years, ever since the time of Solomon, They had a series of evil rules who would come in and crush them, many times wipe out almost the entire population, take them into captivity, starve them to death, all these kinds of things. And Jesus is saying uh, to them that I'm allowing this to happen for a time. The answer that's given in this text is a fairly simple one. The reason God allows the wicked to flourish alongside the sons of the kingdom, at least for a time, is so that damage is not done to the sons of the kingdom, or that damage is not done to the purposes that he wants to fill in the world in order to purge the the sons of the evil one. When I was a kid, I got a number of personal illustrations this morning, but when I was a kid, we lived in Minnesota, and at one point, we went over to stay at my uncle's farm in Wisconsin, and we were out playing, and we were in a kind of a wooded area alongside of a field of oats, and, and uh, when we got called into lunch, now I'm a city kid at this point, you know, so I, I don't know any better, 
we, when we got called in lunch, my brother and I ran right through that field of oats, you know, to, to, and back, back to the house to, to get dinner. And I had no idea what I had done until that evening when my uncle came in and he asked the question, who ran through the field of oats? We had trampled these oats. They were about this high at this point. So they had, they had come into the head. They weren't ready to harvest. But we'd run through this field and we had ruined probably about 13 bushels of oats that would never be able to, har- be able to be harvested because we had trampled them down. Now he was incredibly forgiving and gracious, you know, so he wasn't even all that angry. It was kind of dumb city kids, you know, that kind of thing. But that's, that, that, was, that, that's, that was the reality. So um, in, this, in this passage, when the, when the, the owner of the field uh, is asked, do you want us to go in and rip them out? He says, no because too much damage will be done to the existing crop. So here's the mystery here. Although we often don't understand the plan and purposes of God and all that he does or allows, we know this much, that God desires all men, all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And, that, and he's in the process of gathering a people unto himself to whom he intends to grant everlasting life with him in a paradise life existence where no longer it will there be any death and destruction, pain and sorrow, heartbreak or imperfection. And he's been at that work for at least 2,000 years. In fact, I think actually if we read our Bibles right, he's been at it ever since Adam's fall. But God is at work in our, in, in, in our world, gathering a people unto himself. And the reason that he delays judgment of the wicked is so that that plan will be fulfilled. You know, the story of the gospel in the world is not that the evil one undermines the, the, the sons of, of, of the kingdom. It's actually reversed. In fact, this is where I think we need to be careful about pushing the parable too far. Let me suggest the categories, the seeds of uh, the weeds and the seeds that, that, that give birth to, to the wheat are not necessarily categories that are set in stone. The story of the gospel in the world is one actually of people moving from the kingdom of the evil one to the kingdom of heaven, not the reverse. And you could read Ephesians 2 to see this. We were, king, we, we were sons of the evil one. We were, we were followers of the, of, of the devil himself. We were, we were accorded that, but the gospel has come and now we have been made sons of the kingdom. Although there's a dynamic at play within the world of the sons of the, of the evil one versus the sons of the kingdom, which can corrupt the good seed or, or limit its yield, the reality is this, is that if the good seed is nurtured, it can yield 30, 60, and 100 fold. It can completely overwhelm the work of the evil one. In one sense, the picture that we have in this text is actually one that's incredibly positive. You've got the whole field, the whole world is his field. It's cultivated. He goes out and he, and he plants the good seed throughout it. Yes, the evil one comes along and plants bad seed as well. But the, but the ultimate picture is that there will be a great harvest that is made. So let me leave you with this. On the day of Pentecost, and David mentioned this uh, last week, I think. On the day of Pentecost, there were about 120 followers gathered, gathered together when the Holy Spirit comes down. 300 years later, more than half of the Roman Empire, it's estimated that more than half of the residents of the Roman Empire had come to faith in Christ, were at least naming the name of Christ. Today, 
there, it's estimated that there are roughly 2.3 billion Christians in the world. And Christianity remains the fastest growing religion on the face of the earth. Forget about Islam, forget, forget about Hinduism or Buddhism or any of the other religions. Christianity remains the, the, the religion that, that is triumphing. God is calling a people to himself. The reason why he delays is so that we might be brought in. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we are grateful that you have delayed the judgment for our sake, that we might come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we might be brought into your kingdom and be made one of your sons, one of your children. Lord, we ask that you would continue to work powerfully in this world, that we might see those that surround us, that on the outside look as if they're sons of the evil one, but Lord, that you can break through that. You can redeem any individual. We ask, Lord, you work powerfully in us and through us, that we might know you and that we might experience that life in the kingdom with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.